The long run value of humans is going to be creativity, right? Not solving problems, but knowing what problems are worth solving. Hey everyone, welcome to Operations, the show where we look under the hood of companies in hypergrowth. My name is Sean Lane. How much of your time do you think you spend looking for or talking about benchmarks? You know, trying to find those proven examples that you can copy, emulate, strive towards. I know I certainly do. But if we all fast forward, at what point do those benchmarks stop being aspirational and instead just become handcuffs? The way things have been done, so therefore the way things must be. I found that the people who question these limiting beliefs and look at problems through brand new lenses are typically pretty great people to learn from. They're the ones creating what will become the norm, the new benchmarks of the future. One of those people is Errol Toker. Errol, whose voice you heard at the top of the show, is the founder and CEO of Truly, a company that helps eliminate complex, repetitive tasks through a methodology called hyper-automation. In our conversation, Errol teaches me all about hyper-automation, which I believe will be the new benchmark for operations teams. We talk about the long-term value of humans, how operators can rethink the difference between low-value and high-value activities, and what his company did when they asked themselves, what would it take to not have SDRs? To start, let's hear from Errol what he means about the concept of hyper-automation and how he discovered it in the first place. So it's really interesting. Hyper-automation is a concept that exists in the back office of enterprises, and it hasn't really entered revenue. It's a brand new concept that we're sort of bringing into revenue and what's weird about it is, you know, you look at all these public companies, right? Like fastest growing companies of all time, Slack, Twilio, fastest to 100 million in ARR. There's a company out there called UiPath that beat all of them. You know, in just a couple of years, they went from below 10 million ARR to 100 million ARR. So massive, massive potential in that segment called robotic process automation. And, you know, robotic process automation is a little bit like, you know, kind of like what sequencers do. They just automate away really low value tasks that are repetitive. You know, I click here, click here, I copy it from my spreadsheet, I paste it into an email, like sequencer takes care of that. Hyper automation is kind of like this next generation evolution of that, where basically what you're saying is, okay, there's the low value stuff we've automated out of way. But there's the high value stuff that I still need a human for. And what I'm relying on is human judgment, right? So like I'm going into an account, I'm prospecting into it, and I need to get a feel of this account, right? So I look at how many VPs of marketing are there? Oh, there's three. Well, that means something versus one. And you know, how long have they been in there and how fast are they growing? So all we rely on humans for a lot of this intuition. Like, what do I say? What's the most salient thing? Hyper-automation is basically saying, how can I take the latest things that are happening in AI and try to replicate and emulate that judgment? And if I can do that, and this is where it kind of gets funny, right? Because a lot of people say, oh, the robots are coming. They're never going to defeat humans. It's not about that. It's more like if I could take the things that are high value that you don't have enough time in the day to do, right? Like researching your accounts and doing this is still high value, but it's not the same as like sitting down and really thinking about a customer's problem and kind of like looking at it from like, that's the creative stuff. So hyper automation is just taking that automation we've had for the last 15 years to just the next level with the latest AI techniques. This is one of those times when I'm so glad we have these moments in our show to stop and reflect on what we just heard. 
Errol just described the evolution from the robotic process automation introduced by the likes of UiPath to this whole new concept of hyper-automation. And my biggest takeaway is that we as an industry have evolved past just automating these low-value activities. It's not just about logging emails or populating fields. Errol is using words like judgment and feel to describe the work that is hyper-automation. These aren't low-value activities. They're what he describes as high value. What that means is that our lens as operators, that radar we use to seek out inefficiencies, has got to change. So how do we learn to do that? The way that I frame it, the way that I think about it is before, if you think of ops just in general, right, there wasn't a ton of ops. It was originally just sales ops. And sales ops was like under sales. And the job of sales ops was to make sales efficient. And so what is what is making sales efficient? It's like whatever the VP of sales says, right? That's what we're going to do. Like that's the job. And so what does the VP of sales say? It's like, well, it goes to the reps and says, well, what's, what's taking up time? And so that's like one way of looking at it. I think what's happening with RevOps and I think what you guys are like doing at Drift, for example, that's having like really big impact is, is flipping that and saying like, well, it's not about the sales reps and making them efficient. It's about making the customer's buying journey efficient and pleasant. And then as a result, we become efficient because we've cut all the, you know, all the fat out of the equation. So I think like when we're talking about what is a low value activity that we're automating, like the first thing you have to do is think about like, well, low value from what lens, low value for whom? And then once you know that, then you can like jump into and start having the conversation on like what's a low value activity or what's a what's a high value activity. So can you give me an example of one of those ones? If you're viewing it through the customer lens, can you give me an example of one of those activities that hyper automation might make different? Let's say that I want to go into an account, right? And I don't really know what that account looks like or how it works and I have a flow. So I have to go and find the people and guess the emails and find the accounts. And and some salesperson might say, that takes a lot of time, right? And I'd say to you, hey, Sean, that's not selling time. That's not sales. I'm doing non-selling activities. And then you'd go and buy a Zoom Info or an Apollo or something, get the contact data, give it to me, and I'll just drop in my emails and just essentially spam the account, right? And so I say spam here in the sense that like some of those are high value going to the right people, but some of it is spam, which means that you know they're getting unsolicited outreach they don't want. And so from an internal view, that's like how you would say, hey, we're making sales really efficient, right? Like Bill or Jane over there is no longer doing this like really inefficient activity. They have all the selling time. But at the same time, like I'm doing untold damage to that account right? It's a bad experience for the customer. Maybe the person that you're getting is the wrong person today. And six months later, they get promoted and they have this like really bad impression of you. And, you know, in the long run, and maybe the rep who sent that isn't even there. And so somebody inherits this account. It's like, why won't these people talk to me? And I think that's like this myopic, more like sales operations, inward focused approach. So with hyper automation, you'd say, oh man, like I got to go on LinkedIn. I have to go look at these people. I have to try to figure out the personality. It's like, how do they all fit together? And it's a lot of unstructured data, right? So it's not like I can just sit there and look at, like some people put in a headline, some people don't, right? So it's not like if this, then that. You kind of have to apply a lot of nuance to that analysis and even how you find that analysis, right? Like you may have to leave LinkedIn. It's not just like, oh yeah, I'm gonna go scrape LinkedIn. 
I may need to actually go to some other network like Twitter and go find more information there and start stitching it together in different ways. So to me, that is an example of like a high value automation with a customer experience in mind versus a low value automation that's really centered on the seller. Now, both impact the seller, right? It's just like, are you looking at it in a time horizon of like a day or are you looking at a time horizon of three months, six months? So not only do we as operators need to make the distinction between high value and low value activities, we need to view any improvements that we're making through that external customer lens first. Enabling someone to enroll 500 people in the same sequence doesn't do anybody any good. So seek out the better alternative to that. Errol isn't saying that that's easy. Think of it this way. Errol pointed out to me that this elevated or this hyper-automated way of doing account research is exactly how you'd teach the perfect SDR to do it. But just the SDR doesn't actually have to do it. The AI workflow does it for them. And if that sounds complicated, it is, but maybe not as complicated as you think. I was talking to somebody today about like kind of how all this works. And we're looking at a very small part of the problem. And, you know, we were having a conversation code, no code. And I said, you know, what's funny is like we originally prototyped this in a no code tool and no code is part of it but we've written 15,000 lines of code around it. And it's a very small part of it. And the person was like, okay, that's like really complicated, right? But if you think about it, 15,000 lines of code versus like your 50 billion neural connections and like, <laughs> you know, millions of dollars taking you from kindergarten to whatever, I think people really underestimate just how much like value add humans are adding in the part of the sales process. It's like getting to know you and, and, and finding targeting. Like the long run to me is it's so clear. The long run GPT-3 is out. AI is already creating like all that stuff. The long run value of humans is going to be creativity, right? Mm. Not solving problems, but knowing what problems are worth solving, right? So when I go into an organization, right, I don't even like... When you think of the efficiency pitch, I only focus on one thing, which is how much time are your reps speaking to other people? That's the only okay. metric that I think matters. And the reason for that is if the true value that a person can provide is exploration and creativity and stringing a problem together, if that is the true, the maximum value that a person can provide, probably most of that is going to happen in spoken form or collaborative form. Right. So it doesn't really matter to me if you're, you know, like we've automated away all your activities. Like if you have two hours of speaking time a day, like I don't care how efficient you think you are or how much, you know, from an internal lens, you're like, I audit, I made sales 300 percent more efficient. Doesn't matter because the maximum value that they can provide is two hours of the day. That's the utmost maximum value that they can provide. And so I think like that's kind of like how I think about the shift with RevOps is like. You know, it's like, how do we rethink what our resources are and how do we align them to customers in different creative sort of ways to maximize that airtime? So you and I have talked about this a little bit. And I mean, it, it kind of seems like you're kind of throwing away many, if not all, of like the traditional measures of what makes a ops team, quote unquote, good. 
And also like the right way to measure the output of a sales organization is as well. So can you kind of talk about this evolution that you've gone on from that kind of more traditional lens that you're talking about to the way you're thinking about it now, which is like, I think at its core, talk time per customer per day. So first of all, like I'm not redefining anything. I think the game has already been redefined by Mm -hmm. the customer, right? And I think, again, like the company you're at played a huge part in it. Right. The, the whole premise of sales operations and making, you know, internal metrics, the whole premise of that is that we have leverage and control over the situation. You know, 30 years ago, we had control <laughs> yeah. through information asymmetry. So it was like, I'm in the Chicago market. I'm the only person who sells this widget. You know, I'm going to call on this prospect or maybe there's five. But like, what are the odds that five people are going to call on the prospect at the same time? Like that was the first information asymmetry. That was the first leverage. Then the second leverage came from like, I can just achieve, you know, I can automate these low value tasks. I can achieve it. And today, like there's kind of five versions of every app. And even though they're different, like, you know, they all make the same claims. You know, the thing as a buyer is like, all I can go off is the claims and the cost of exploring those claims with you. And I don't always buy the best product, right? I just, I just do my best to predict what that ROI is going to be. And so now it's like, you can ban me all you want. If I can book a meeting off of, you know, off of Drift and I get to that first account executive and they get me into the product release, like that's what I'm gonna do. I'm just gonna do the easiest thing. The long run value of humans is knowing which problems are worth solving. The long run value of humans is knowing which problems are worth solving. Errol has me convinced that our creativity is not only our most important asset, but the means through which we provide value in this new world. I talk about this all the time with my team. If you're just going to be a requirements gatherer and you go off and do exactly what someone else thinks is best, you're missing out on the opportunity to truly shape and contribute the outcomes at your company. When Errol says we have to rethink what our resources are, he's talking about us too. So how did he arrive here? This wasn't exactly what truly always did. Like any good entrepreneur, Errol solved his own problems and realized others had them too. Our company came out of a pivot and in the middle of that pivot, like one of the things we had an opportunity to do was kind of like look at everything that we've done up till then, right? So we just gotten profitable, like we're kind of looking around, we're like, all right, we didn't really, you know, we did good, but like not the best. We're going to pivot the business. What's been working and what hasn't been working? And one of the things that we found was like, we wrote down all the things that we hated doing. And what we realized was like, all the things we hate doing, other people hate, like the customer hates as well. Right. So like, here's a good example. Like one of the biggest problems we had was quoting. We hate quoting. Why? Because right after we do the negotiation discussion, I generate the quote 19 seats. Okay. We go through the CPQ tool. We fill everything out. We generate this thing. We get somebody to double check that we didn't screw it up. Great. Send it to the customer. Oh, I want 20 seats. Okay. So we go and do that. Right. You send it again and the customer gets back to you and says, Hey, yeah, actually admin licenses. I kind of forgot about that. (laughs) And you're like, come on, man. And then, right, you send, you send it and then they, you know, you have to follow up six times. You know, let me ask you this, like, like, how would we fix that with sales operations? Like, what's the view to that problem that I just described? Yeah, I mean, like at that point, it's all process, right? There's no, it's back and forth with the customer and really you have to have a rep to help make those changes. But let's just say you have a really adamant VP of sales and is like, I want you to automate this with tech. Like, what would you do? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. I mean, I think you try to make it customer facing, right? Where they can make some of those tweaks themselves on 
seats maybe okay so like that is inputs like that is incredibly futuristic right like 99 of people that i talk to when i ask this question will say cpq sucks right replace the cpq yeah, yeah, yeah. and then yeah, like yeah. maybe we should import that person into a sequence to send them a daily reminder after the contract's mm. like that's how and i'm glad that you say that by the way because like again it makes sense why you're an influencer in the community and all that stuff and why you work at drift like but 99 of people will immediately say cpq and so what we thought was exactly what you said is like, this is a shopping checkout cart. Mm. Why am I checking out somebody else's cart? <laughs> like It's like mm-hmm. on Amazon, right? You go check out your own cart. And then what we yeah. realize is when you start working backwards is like our pricing isn't clear. We're making stuff up based on the wrong, pe- you know, like we, we got somebody through a funnel who's not a perfect fit, but we want the money. So we go through this. And if you add up all the costs that's associated with that nonsense, plus the new CPQ upgrade that's going to solve everything, but it isn't. If you add up all that cost, like this is a very unprofitable and efficient organization, mm-hmm. right? So I think like my, my viewpoint, like our view about RevOps, like came from that. We were sitting there trying to look at our own business and figure out like, why are renewals so terrible? Like why? <laughs> like why is it so? What? Like why do I have to chase after this person? Like really? Like we sold them NPS is high. Da 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 da. Like why is that? And the answer is like always somewhere really deep up funnel. And mm-hmm. so like if you're trying to solve every problem bit by bit by bit by bit, you miss the big picture. And that's like my attitude towards low value activity automation. It's like all right, we're you know. We're making it easier to chase the person down for the renewal. We're making it easier to do that. And that's like, that's not the problem. The problem was like, hey, you know, we weren't paying attention to the account when the new VP came in. Like that was the problem. Errol's progression here is very interesting, but probably not all that unique. We've all had those painful moments in our own processes and we just want them to be better. But he's doing something about it. So what does the end of that rainbow look like? He's right that there are a million little things you could solve. So does that require a million little versions of hyperautomation? Is that even possible? It turns out that over the course of two years, the results inside of Truly's own business speak for themselves. So our MQL to SQL rate went up from 15% to 85%. Well, the amount of time that we spend on demos... Like before the demo, you know, you have to like get your water and like prep. It went from one yep. and a half hours to two minutes. We don't negotiate anymore. We don't negotiate pricing. Upsells don't require recontracting. It's all consumption-based pricing. Customers do their own CPQ, always. Like basically we just, we, we went and bought some off-the-shelf technology that's like not very great. It's actually designed for SMBs to sell to SMBs. But we just threw it out there and people just like now check themselves out. And, you know, it's just, it's just a stress-free environment. So that's the outcome. That's like, that's like the promised land, or that's how we define the promised land for us. And that's what we were really happy with. That's amazing. So part of this, absolutely a mindset shift, right? Focusing on the customer-facing components of this, you know, to your point, like there's definitely like a drift angle here, right? Where it's like the, you're not just acknowledging that the power is in the hands of the buyer, but actually giving them more power, which is really interesting. Help me make this concrete for people. An hour and a half of prep down to two minutes. Connect the dots for me on on what a typical Truly rep was doing before to make up that hour and a half and what is, I guess, done on their behalf today 
such that their prep was only needs to be two minutes. Yeah. So the first thing we did was to basically say, we're not going to have decks anymore. The website is the deck because like basically we're going to show people, we're going to walk people through the website and like what's there, right? We don't, we're not going to have this thing where marketing said something and then they came in through that and then sales is now showing a different deck and there's like a misalignment, whatever. So that was like the first action we took. And as we did that, what we realized was like before you had to, you know, prepare your demo environment and get ready and get focused. Cause like, if you click the wrong thing, the wrong thing's going to happen. And today what we do is we show videos, <laughs> we show videos on the demo. So we have videos that are 60 seconds long and it's, you know, like we're still not done. Those videos are now going on the website to make it easier to buy. But what we realized is like, as, as ludicrous as it sounds, like, why would I get on the phone with you to watch a video? Well, it's like, that's all we had. But what we found is like, if we can break down the things that they want to see into pieces and show them on the demo and see how they react, right? And co-pilot and ask them, so what, you know, like, did anything stand out to you in that? What should we dive into on the call? Like, you get all this valuable market research out of it. And so what happens is like those videos improve. And eventually what you find is like, it's the perfect demo. Like you don't need to, the wording is perfect. The, the length is perfect. Everything's perfect. So, you know, we get on calls. And the other thing is, we know that those videos work because they're aligned to the marketing. Like they all map back to the website. So here's a good example. When somebody complains about sales enablement, I'm like, like, you don't have a sales enablement problem. You're letting random people into your funnel who like, you know, the reps don't know how to handle that. And they're telling you they need another deck. Like the solution to that is not more sales enablement. Stop letting in the bad fit customers into your funnel and whatever you train them on is going to work just fine. Right. And or enable them to hang up the phone, right? Like enable them to get off that call so that you don't create this downstream, like we need a head of enablement, we need more training, which takes away from the talk time. Like you don't need any of that. You just need a really clear funnel that each piece kind of works with the other pieces. The thing that struck me throughout my conversation with Errol is that the rest of us are victim to our own limiting beliefs about what RevOps is or what is possible through technology. And Errol goes into these conversations with his customers without the handcuffs of these limiting beliefs. In fact, he's made it incredibly simple on himself and his customers by following some role models of his own. The hyper automation conversation is really, really simple because again, like we focus on the journey. Most people just don't even know like 99.9% .9 of what we're doing is possible. So we take them through a funnel and by the way, so like in that funnel, one of the biggest projects we did here was we took our product and we broke it up into like 15 different products just based on the AWS model. Like we were like, hmm, we spend 500 grand a year on this thing and we've never really spoken to a sales rep except for when we were begging for them to accelerate the contract signature so we wouldn't be penalized for being out of contract and lose our discount. <laughs> like that, like I, I'm like, how do we do, how do we do that? Right. And so like our journey is much more oriented to how do I make this really easy for you? Like, hey, Sean at Drift, you know, you got our marketing, you gave it, get it. David might not get it. There's all these things, they don't get it. I'm just like, how do I help you, Sean, get it and show one more person what it is? And it's never like, hey, show them like the full solution and the idea. It's like, how do we use the product as a vehicle to plant an idea inside that organization and then build out the product in a way where there's natural hooks into additional use cases where the product starts to tell the story itself. And I think like that is more of a RevOps concept more than a hyper automation concept, which is, you know, at the core of that is like just 
what is the purpose of a business? The purpose of a business, I think, like, and by the way, this is like not an easy question. We asked ourselves this question in the pivot. We were actually like, do we close shop? Like, what is our, what is our criteria for deciding to stay open? And what we landed on was like, the purpose of a business is to drive lasting change, as much lasting change as possible. And the opposite of a massive impact, but la- non-lasting change, so non-lasting impact is like a Tamagotchi. It's a fad, right? So sequencing became the thing. We spammed the crap out of people and like now nobody paying attention to email. Like that's like a fad. A transformation, a lasting impact is more like we've completely changed the way that we think about this problem, right? With, with Drift, with you guys, and I promise I'm not sponsored by Drift, but like I think it's a great company, right? They do a really good job of saying like, look, this is how it was before. Like we need to fl- we need to flip the lens and rethink how we think about this problem. You know, and so like the way to make lasting change is not ACV. It's not number of logos. It's not this, it's not that. It's how do you, like, it's almost like inception. How do we create an experience that leads this organization to change the way it thinks about the problem? And then you work backwards from there. And it sounds, I think, a little abstract, but from a product management perspective, if you think about it, this is all product managers do, right? Like this is like literally what they do. They look at user behavior, they try to figure out like, what are they doing today? How do we change that? Is it a nudge? Is it a this? Is it AI? Like, I don't know, but how do we get them to change what they're doing? And I think we're just applying that way of thinking to revenue. And I think that's the lens. And to your point about kind of what you want the lasting impact of truly to be, right? Like how people think about those problems makes total sense to me. I think the other thing that you mentioned briefly, and I think this probably ties back more to the hyper automation side is like helping people to even know what's possible, right? Like I think plenty of ops folks, myself included, did not come to ops from some sort of like highly technical skill set, you know, nobody majored in this in college, right? Like, so what have you learned about making that more tangible for people to say, hey, yeah, like that problem you have, you might not even know this, you don't know what you don't know, but there is a different, more technical way to solve this that actually also solves your business problem. Yeah, that's an awesome question. So I think that there's kind of two things happening. So like there's my thinking, but realistically, there's two things happening in the market that are impacting at the same time. The first one is, you know, if you look at RevOps, just as, you know, the economy's getting worse, like there's a lot more money and resources going into it. People are seeing it as more strategic and there's just more higher level of talent coming in, right? It used to be kind of like almost an IT function, the ops functions. And I think you'd get you know, these real gem people who do amazing things, but still in really an IT kind of view. Now these people are VPs, you know, they work directly with, they often report directly to the CEO. So that's one thing, like actually you're getting people who used to be product people or or McKinsey consultants or whatever coming in who are bringing that experience. I think the second part is just a, a much more bottoms up motion. It's just community driven. And I think that's about meeting people where they are. Like one thing we really try to do today is to like not like people have to be ready for change. Like that's really, really important. Like if you're in a company that isn't ready for change, like what good is it me telling you about all these technologies and things if that's not what's going to you know make you happy and get you promoted and save your job? So we've just been really focusing on social to drive awareness. And, you know, one thing that's been really cool is, you know, just three weeks ago, I, I put a post on LinkedIn. I was like, hey. 
you know, I'm starting a new Slack community called Automation Heads. It's literally for people. It's not, we're not going to talk about people in process. We're only going to talk about technology and we're going to, and it's just a safe space for people to ask outlandish questions and pitch people on outlandish ideas of like, I'm going to use GPT-3 to do this, or, you know, what do you think of Elon Musk's robot? And what's that going to do? You know, like, just, just like that. And we got a hundred people on social signing up for this thing. And that really surprised me. Right. And I think that shows that there is appetite, but it's appetite that wasn't there two years ago. And so I think it's just going to pick up from here. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think the community-based part of it, the show, hopefully one small example, like this is where people are going to find the answers, right? Like if I'm looking for a new answer to a problem, like, yeah, maybe I'm going to Google some stuff first, but then the second place I'm going is to all the different ops Slack communities that I'm a part of, right? And I get an answer a hundred percent of the time, right? It never has failed me. And so from that perspective, like it's a very reliable source of intel to help me to do my job, especially in a role that you don't usually have a lot of peers, right? And so the folks who can take advantage of these types of communities and these types of resources the best, chances are, are the ones that are going to do the best in their roles internally because, you know, they don't have five or 10 people to their left and their right that do the same job as them that they can bounce ideas off of. Whether it's from your Slack community or just something you guys have been working on internally recently, for the operators who are listening, like give me one workflow, automation, whatever that people might not know is possible that you guys have recently been working on that that might help people in their gigs. So, uh, you know, we've been working on this for six months. This may be blasphemous, but <laughs> we sort of set out a project to basically say, what would it take to not have SDRs who don't do anything but talk to people? By the way, we don't have SDRs. We used to have SDRs and we used to have salespeople outbounding. And we basically going back to our, our new metric, which is like, we only want to hire people who talk to people and like help them in creative ways. It was like, well, how do we do that? And, you know, as of a couple of weeks ago, it works pretty well. So it will take workflows and it will take our old SDR playbook and we give it to it and it will go on, on LinkedIn and a whole bunch of different data sources, pull the data together, figure out based on our criteria, like who the right people are in the account, analyze what they talk about online to try to map that to interest as a first guess in terms of what's going out. And then validate, guess and validate the email down to the level of weird stuff like, you know, how would you validate an email if like you didn't know? It's like copy paste it into Gmail and like kind of see if you get the little avatar, right? So that has been really life-changing. <laughs> and it's life-changing, you know, like not because that stuff sucks or is annoying or expensive. It's just life-changing knowing why certain campaigns are working and not working. Like that's the thing. Have you heard of sprint testing as a concept? Yeah. Right. So it's like sprint testing. It's like, how do you sprint test? Like with ads, sprint testing is easy because it's like the same ad and you know exactly where it's being served to who. And like you have that with email, you don't really have that because there's like so much like manual stuff going on and you don't really know if there's, there's deviation. So our current project is trying to optimize our email funnel with bursts of only 30 emails. So what we're trying to do is with no more than 30 emails get to a point where we've optimized our emails on you know one sort of domain where we can make all kinds of mistakes and then take that to a high value and untouched domain 
And interestingly, the goal of the experiment is to turn off all tracking on the real scale thing. So it's like, do lots of measured experiments small and then get to a level of confidence where you're so confident in what you've done because the underlying data is good, where you're like, I don't need to measure opens anymore. I'm just going to send it. And there's like a little trick that, you know, we're going to be posting. We have a content series on LinkedIn. We're going to post there on how to track clicks without having click tracking. So we're going to rely on meetings booked and actual like content read as the metric of mass outbound rather than opens and clicks and other stuff that turns out that doesn't really say anything anymore. We're definitely going to have to have Errol back on the show to hear the results of his SDR experiment. But before we go, at the end of each show, we're going to ask each guest the same lightning round of questions. Ready? Here we go. Best book you've read in the last six months? Oh, oh my God. Breakthrough advertising. Interesting. What is that? So if you go back to like original copywriters, like like David Ogilvy, Breakthrough Advertising is a book by one of those greats, Eugene Schwartz. And basically he breaks down, he's basically like, here's the mathematical theory of markets and how different products in different parts of maturity all boil down to certain playbooks. And the guy is just like a genius. His book legally costs $500 to acquire. It's a very expensive book, but if you're very skilled, you can find it online. (laughs) Nice. All right, cool. I'm going to put you, I think, safely in the ops category here. So these next two will be just fine. Favorite part about working in ops? Solving problems that are, that involve people. (laughs) Like they're never, you know, it's not like one plus one equals two. There's usually like a part of human psychology that I enjoy very much. Least favorite part about working in ops? The people. (laughs) (laughs) I, I laid that one up there for you. Someone who impacted you getting to the job you have today? Oof. Uh, well, I mean, I was, I was really lucky to be part of a team just right out of college. I got lucky and I picked a team that got acquired by Google. A lot of those people went on to do really great things. So it was the hardest job I probably will still ever have, even compared to an entrepreneur. And I, I just do everything I can to replicate that here. Just a group of people who do nothing but push each other to do things that they didn't know they could do. That's awesome. Last one. One piece of advice for people who want to have your job someday. Don't start too early. I think 24 was too early to start a company. I think probably like 28 is just like the the time when you've just had enough runway. Like when I started this, I didn't know what an MSA was. <laughs> so if you don't know what an MSA is, don't start a company. How about that? That'll be my <laughs> advice. <laughs> At least in the B2B space. Yeah. So yeah, don't start too early. Do you think that there was something about that extra time that better equipped you to be the founder you are now? I think, you know, Peter Thiel says this in his book, like there'll every startup is different and there'll never be another one. So like, there's no point being scientific about it. I think there's a lot of survivor bias. Of course, like, like the crux of my story is, you know, business one didn't work. And then we got lucky enough to be profitable enough to take a step back and ask ourselves questions that most people can't ask, either because they've gone bankrupt or because they've scaled so fast that every problem is somebody else's problem. I think that's my fortune, but I wish you better fortune. (laughs) I hope your first idea works better than mine did.
Thank you so much to Errol for joining us on this week's episode of Operations. If you liked what you heard, make sure you're subscribed to our show. A new episode comes out every other Friday. Also, this is our 90th episode. So if you've missed any of the other 89, now's a good chance to go back and listen to some of our earlier episodes. Also, if you learned something today, make sure you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, six-star reviews only. All right, that's going to do it for me. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Oh, 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 oh,